This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Professor Pamela Nadell, who is the uh, Patrick Clendenin Chair in Women's and uh, Gender uh, History, and is also the director of the Jewish Studies uh, program at American University, has written an extraordinary book. Uh, she is one of the pioneers in, uh, I would call it, the, the history of American Jewish women. And among her publications um, are um, not only this most recent book, um, but some what I would call classics um, that have been instrumental in changing the face of American Jewry. So I want to draw your attention um, to uh, one of her early books from 1999, it's 20 years ago, um, namely, um, Women Who Want to Be Rabbis, um, A History of Women's Ordination from 1889 until 1985. That book is routinely cited by women who are entering into the rabbinate. Um, and it's really, uh, in many ways, contributed to more and more women finding their professional lives um, in uh, the rabbinate. So in its, its great scholarship, but it also has um, had a very significant impact on American Jewish life. Um, she is also, with jo Jonathan Sarna, um, uh, the editor of the Brandeis series in American Jewish History, Culture, and Life, which I believe began in 2001, I think. And um, so she is a senior person in the area of American Jewish women. And we're very fortunate on this dark, gloomy day to have Pamela Nadell, professor uh, from American University, brighten our lives with real wi wisdom about uh, American Jewish women. Please welcome Pamela Nadell. Um, I'm going to do something a, a little bit unusual to open an academic talk. I'm going to show you some family photos, okay? So this first one is of my great-grandmother. And there, there's an amazing story about how I actually happen to have this. When my grandmother was aging and went into a nursing home, she pulled out of her sewing box these photos, and they're on cloth. And this one of her mother, and then also, as we'll see in a minute, one of her and, um, and two others that I'm not going to show you. And they were extraordinary photos, and no, her daughters, my mother and uh, my aunt, had never seen them. It was amazing. Apparently, she had them taken, and at one point, she thought she'd make them into pillows, which would have been a huge tragedy. So now they're safe and secure and behind museum glass on the wall of my dining room. But if you look at this photo of my great-grandmother, there are a couple of things that I want to point out to you. The first is that um, she looks very old-fashioned. This was taken in the first decade of the 20th century. She's wearing a dress that one of my former students who's getting a PhD in apparel design told me went out of style in 1870. But this, so that makes it like almost 40 years old, 30, 40 years old by the time this was taken. But what I really want to point out is that if you look at her hairline, 
She is wearing what is called a shidal. A shidal is a wig that observant married Jewish women wear out of modesty so that only their husbands would see the beauty of their own hair. So this makes her very old-fashioned for a woman living in New York City in the 19-teens. And then in this photo, you see my grandmother, her daughter, She's about 14 when it was taken, and she, I like to think of her as being very she-she. She's got a bow in her hair, she's got bows on her shoes, and, and I know from this stu- former student of mine that the dress that she's wearing, which was called a linen dress or a lingerie dress, was only in style from 1903 to 1910. So we can completely place when it was, and it also says something about how au courant she was in her dress. This one is of my mother, and she's in a park on a warm spring day. It's the woman with her back to us, and she's wearing what she told me she always wore, a black pencil skirt. She's got on a white blouse, and if you look very carefully over her shoulder, you can see a baby's bonnet peeking out. Can you see that? It's a little, little hard. Okay, that's me. And I didn't bring a photo of me because you can see me, and I'm wearing what I always wear, which is a black jacket, because that's what professional women of my generation tend to wear. But I do have a photo of my daughter, and, um, and she's wearing something typical for her generation of college students. She's in, um, in medical school now, so a little bit older than you. Um, she's wearing a short skirt, she's wearing tall boots, and she's taking a selfie. And I want, I'm going to come back to that because I'm interested in technology, and you'll see why in a moment. Um, and so when I, I, said, I, I said, I need a photo to use in my book talk, she said, Mom, you can use this one, but you have to tell them that the boots are yours. And of course, I had forgotten about that. So the question is why do I open a book talk and a book by talking about family photos? And I do because they made me think about how different not only was the clothing of the women in my family, but their lives. My great-grandmother was one of more than 2 million East European Jews who came to the United States around the turn to the 20th century. Her daughter, my grandmother, raised her children in the Great Depression. My mother had a very typical path for someone who came of age around the time of World War II. Um, After the war, she graduated high school. She became a secretary. Then when she got married and had children, she stopped working, and she raised the children. And then when she was ready to go back to work, She started out again as a secretary and then shifted careers and became a real estate agent and worked into her 80s. I, however, had entirely different opportunities. I rode the coattails of a revolution that I did not make, but that I was fortunate enough to be born at the moment of and to live through. Those coattails took me into my career as a professor, and it is the same coattails that my daughter is riding in, in her future career in medicine. So we had very different lives, and I was really, really struck by that. I wanted to know things like, what was different about the generations in terms of the marriages they made? What about the kinds of work that they did? 
what the kinds of work that they were not allowed to do. What was different about their politics? I wanted to know what was different about the games that they played and their leisure pursuits. I wanted to know, for example, when did Mahjong become a Jewish woman's game? And I can tell you the answer is the 1920s, and you can ask me more about that later. I also really wanted to know how technology and structural changes had affected women's lives. And here's an example of what I mean. So we we saw my daughter with the cell phone. Anybody know what this woman is doing? What? It could be sterilizing bottles. It's a little hard to see. It's not bottles on the top. Who said it? Laundry. Yeah, she's doing laundry. And that's, think of what it took to do laundry at the beginning of the 20th century. This photo was taken in the 19 teens, okay? So second decade of the 20th century. She's lucky. She's got running water. You can see the spigots on the wall. Um, but she has to fill that huge tub. She's got to load it with the clothes. She's got to stir the clothes. It's clear, by the way, that this was a posed photo. I really hope she would not have been holding the baby while she was boiling the water on the stovetop. She's got to stir the clothes. Then she's got to take them out. Um, Have you ever lifted out soaking wet clothes? You know how heavy they are? She's got to wring them out in the sink. Then she's got to carry it upstairs to the roof, hope it's not raining, hang them out, let them dry, bring them down, and maybe even then have to iron them. Doing laundry was a tremendously difficult and time-consuming task that engaged women in this shape until the electric washing machine was invented in the 20th century. Just imagine what women's lives were like when they didn't have those washing machines. But most of all, what I wanted to know was what did it mean for these women to be Jewish women, because that's the women that I'm writing about and I'm interested in. The women in the generations of my family were Jewish women, so how do we understand how being a Jew and Judaism, the religion, how did that impact their lives? So I like to think of it in kind of three ways. There are some women who set Judaism at the very core of their existence, They would move from Sabbath to Sabbath, from holiday to holiday. They would live from Jewish women's organization to their synagogue. They would live in a community where they were surrounded by other Jews. What they cooked in their kitchens defined them as Jews. Everything defined them as Jews. It was at the core of their lives. There's a whole other group of women for whom being a Jew was very important, but I like to think of it more as a sense, a powerful sense of Jewishness. So it's not so much that religion defined their lives as that it determined who they married, the neighborhood they chose to live in, the neighborhood they were not allowed to live in, um, the kinds of work that they did, their family connections probably also determined some of what they cooked in their kitchens. So it's, it's important to them, and it's, not, and it's central to their identities, but not the way it is for those for whom Judaism is at the core. Then there's a whole other group of Jewish women for whom being a Jew was inconsequential, incidental, or maybe even they ignored it. They didn't really, it didn't really matter to them at all. 
but sometimes they would discover that it mattered to other people. I like to think of it like this. If you think you can be a little bit Jewish, you think you can be a little bit pregnant. So two women are going to take us into this story. The first one is this woman named Grace Nathan. Has anybody ever heard of her? Anybody ever heard of Grace Nathan? Okay. So take a look at her dates, 1752 to 1831. Think about the years that she lived during. So she was born in New York in 1752. She lived through Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, the establishment of the Constitution, the War of 1812. But what does she write about when she writes her letters to her family members that have survived in the archives? She writes about a niece who has been spitting up blood for several weeks. But the doctors are not terribly concerned. They think it's because she keeps her corsets too tight. Corsets are these garments that, that was like a, like made of whale bones and strings, and they would be pulled super, super tight to create a certain kind of silhouetted waist. Um, so clothing really mattered across Jewish women's experiences. Um, the other things we know about Grace Nathan from those letters, by the way, she also wrote poetry. It was never published. We know that she started out life as a daughter and a sister. Then she becomes a wife and a mother and a grandmother and a great-grandmother. And, that, and she also becomes a widow. Now, here's another photo. Anybody recognize her? It's Emma Lazarus, right. It's Emma Lazarus. Whoops. Yeah, here it is. Um, Emma Lazarus. So how, have you heard of Emma Lazarus? Uh, some, oh, some yes, some no. All right, Emma Lazarus wrote a poem that's inscribed in the base of the Statue of Liberty. It says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. It's about the mother of exiles welcoming immigrants to the United States. Emma Lazarus, by the way, has been in the news so much lately during the immigration crisis that I think people think that she's still alive. Um, Emma Lazarus was an acclaimed American poet. She also happened to be Grace Nathan's great-granddaughter. So we have two women, very different, with very different kinds of lives. Emma Lazarus never married. She never had a child, as you can see from her dates. She died quite young. But they experienced their lives through three frameworks. They were women, and as women, that meant that they were constrained by the moment in time during which they lived. It would set social roles that were permitted to women of their social and economic classes. They were Americans, and they both reveled in the freedoms of America. And they were Jews, and they both inherited a powerful Jewish tradition. But what is stunning about both of them, the mother and the poet, is that they used the freedom of America to push back, even though they were women, against that Jewish tradition. And let me explain what I mean. Emma Lazarus wrote a poem called Exile, in which she welcomed how America had given her people, who had been kicked out of Spain in 1492, 
Um, this land of the United States had welcomed them and had given them the freedom to follow Moses' law. In other words, to be Jews. And then she wrote, and to think the thoughts Spinoza taught. Now, I have to explain. Spinoza, Benedicte Spinoza, was a 17th century Dutch Jewish philosopher who was kicked out of the Jewish community because of his heretical ideas. In claiming Spinoza in that poem as part of the freedom America granted to her people, she was betraying what was then accepted as Jewish tradition. Grace Nathan, interestingly enough, this you know housewife and mother, also tries to change Jewish tradition. At the end of her life, she wrote something called an ethical will. An ethical will is a document whereby, um, as you reach the last years of your life, you want to leave certain lessons, certain things that you learned, you want to pass them on to your children and grandchildren. In her ethical will, she said, at my death, she's writing to her only son, you should only keep your beard for seven days. Un- what that means is you should not shave. You, or you should, in other words, you won't shave after I die for only seven days, and then it's okay to shave. In Judaism, it is a tradition that a man does not shave following the death of a parent for a minimum of 30 days. Some Jewish men won't shave for an entire year. She was making Jewish law for her family, for her son. So about 35 years after the first Jews set foot in New Amsterdam, this woman, Abigail Levy, was born in London. When she was seven years old, she set sail for America. When she was 16, she married Jacob, who we could also see there. Jacob was 24 years old. Today, in most states, a marriage between a 24-year-old man and a 16-year-old girl would be considered illegal. But back then, that was actually the custom, that the man was typically seven or eight years older than his wife. Why? Because he would have to be able to support her and the children they would begin having within about a year. And that's what happens in Abigail's case. She had nine children... Two of them died in childbirth. And by the way, that's not the record for a colonial Jewish woman. In Philadelphia, Rebecca Machado Phillips had 21 children and almost ran out of, one, one wit once quipped, she almost ran out of names from the Bible to give them if she would have had any more. So I want to tell you a little bit about Abigail. We know that she falls into the category of the pious Jewish women to some extent, um, she, she, uh, the men in her family would pray at home if they didn't pray in the synagogue um, on weekdays, not a, a let alone on the Sabbath. She wrote her, a letter to her son, her eldest child, who was sent to England to live with his father's brother. And she told him in that letter, never eat anything except for bread and butter at your uncle's house. And that's because she didn't trust her sister-in-law to keep a kosher kitchen. 
Now, we know that Naftali, or we assume Naftali, didn't follow this uh, recommendation, shall we say, because he married his cousin. And as far as we know, he and Abigail never saw each other again, but we have this treasure trove of letters that she sent to him. So even though we know she's pious, and she actually has higher tutors to teach her daughters Hebrew, not just her sons, she also rails, she gets really angry against what she calls Judaism's idol ceremonies and superstitions. And she writes that if, if a Calvin or a Luther would rise amongst the Jews, she would be the first of their followers. So imagine this. She is referring to the great Protestant reformers, the founders of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and John Calvin. And it's, she's, she's writing this in the early 1700s, and she wants Judaism to be reformed. Reformed Judaism won't happen, for, begin, even vaguely begin to happen, for more than a half century after her death. But she also learned the cost of that impulse when her daughter Fila intermarried with a Protestant named Oliver Delancey. Abigail wrote that she was so depressed that she never wanted to see or speak to anyone again. And we actually do not know if she was ever reconciled with her daughter Fila over that intermarriage because we have a letter from Jacob where he writes, I'm trying to get your mother to be reconciled. And so we, don't, we just don't know. I mean, we, we have no evidence that it happened or did not happen. So I want to leave behind this colonial world. I want to leave behind the early republic that Grace Nathan lived through. I, I'm going to go past Emma Lazarus's untimely death, and I want to introduce this woman named Rosa Sonnenschein. Rosa Sonnenschein came from Moravia, a country, an area of Central Europe, um, part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire back then. And in the 1860s, she and her husband, who was a rabbi, settled in St. Louis, where he became the rabbi of a leading reform synagogue. And she did what a good rabbi's wife was supposed to do. So the first thing was, while in St. Louis, she gave birth to the fourth of her four children, um, she did things in the synagogue. She actually did some writing in the Jewish press. She did something that I find utterly astonishing. In 1879, she founded the first Jewish women's book club in America. It's called the Pioneers. And I say it is called the Pioneers because it still meets today. We actually have in the archives a list of every of, of the themes that they read. Uh, they would read um, books based on themes each year, dating back to the 1890s. So it's still going strong there today. But Rosa was a maverick in a different kind of way than Emma Lazarus or Grace Nathan. In 1892, she walked out on her husband. Now, in those days, if you wanted to get divorced... You needed grounds, she, usually, generally, adultery or desertion. She gave her husband grounds to divorce her because she deserted him. And so now she's stuck. She has to earn a living because he doesn't have to pay her alimony because she walked out on him. So she founds 
the first English language Jewish women's magazine and calls it the American Jewess. We could talk later if you want about the term Jewess. It was a term that was used by Jewish women themselves, Jewish men. It was a term that was used also by Gentiles at this point in time. But after around 1940, 1945, you don't find it being used so much any longer. But it was not seen as anything negative. If it were, she would not have used it. So in the American Jewess, she proves how much of a maverick she was, how she was changing, pushing against tradition. So on the one hand, because of her audience, she's writing really nice things about middle-class Jewish wives and mothers. On the other hand, she's starting to feature change. So one of the changes is she features a woman named Ray Frank, who was known as the girl rabbi of the Golden West because she was a charismatic proto-rabbi. This is long before women become rabbis. This is in the 1890s. In another issue, which I find even more striking, she was a Zionist. Zionism was the political movement to establish the state of Israel. It was founded in Europe in many different forms, but in one of them by a man named Theodore Herzl. She had met Theodore Herzl when she on return visits in the summers to see her family. And she became convinced that the Jewish people needed their own homeland to protect them from hatred and anti-Semitism, which was rising. So in 1897, when Theodore Herzl convened the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, about five American Jews went to the Congress, because most American Jews were not Zionists back then. Rosa Sonnenschein went, and because there was no representative of the American press, the New York Times didn't send a reporter, for example, she declared that she was the sole representative of the American press at the first Zionist Congress, and came back and wrote about Zionism in the American, in, um, the American Jewess. She was, like Grace Nathan and like Emma Lazarus, beginning to change what became American Judaism. So in her magazine, she also started to feature other women who were engaged in the process of change. In 1893, this woman, Hannah Solomon, founded the National Council of Jewish Women. Today, that organization still exists. In, it took up as its, and its political activity fighting a battle against what was called white slavery. White slavery were um, was international rings of prostitution that would prey on young women and um, and and uh, and even married women, but young but youngish women who were traveling on their own. In these years, millions of women were on the road as part of the great migration of 25 million coming to America. It would prey on them, trap them either in false marriages or um, kidnap them and ship them off to brothels in Buenos Aires and Istanbul and elsewhere. And the National Council of Jewish Women made it its mission to fight against international white slavery. 
They took that message to the White House, and that's the message that you see there. I see them as a part of an emerging group of what I call powerhouse Jewish women's organizations. Here's another one. In 1912, Hadassah was established. In 1913, it sent two nurses to Jerusalem. They hung out that sign that says, um, uh, uh, American Daughters of Zion, Nurses Settlement, Hadassah. It says it in English and in Hebrew. And in one year, they saw 5,000 patients. There were many other Jewish women's powerhouse organizations that still exist today, like the National Organizations of the Synagogue Sisterhoods. But the question is, why were they emerging now, like from the 1890s to the 19-teens? The answer takes me back to something I mentioned earlier about paying attention to changes in American women's lives. In 1800, the average white woman in America gave birth to seven children. By 1900, the average white woman in America was giving birth to 3.5 children. In 1850, the average white woman in America lived to be only, 40, only under, just under 40 years old. In 1920, the average white woman in America lived to about 57 years. So look what's going on. Women are having fewer children, which means they're encumbered with family and childbearing for a much shorter period of time but they're living much longer, and they wanted to do more with their lives than simply, because um, I'm talking about middle-class women, simply fill it with kinds of leisure activities like mahjong, which becomes so popular in the 1920s. So they created, as American women were creating, a host of organizations, but because Jews were separate from the rest of Americans. I mean, Jewish women were separate from the rest of Americans. They created their own Jewish women's organizations. But sometimes Jewish women didn't need a powerful organization in order to be an activist. In 1902, when the price of kosher meat, are you aware that Jews keep dietary laws and they want only to eat, if they follow this religious law, they only eat meat that is properly prepared as kosher meat? So the price of kosher meat soared from 12 cents a pound to 18 cents a pound. Just think of what that increase did. We've got Jewish women, they've come over from Eastern Europe, they're poor, they're stretching every single penny in order to feed and clothe their families, and now they cannot afford to buy the meat. And in 1902, they launched a kosher meat boycott on the streets of the Lower East Side of New York City. They broke into butcher shops, they took the meat out, they threw it in the street, they doused it with kerosene, so nobody else could eat it, and sometimes they set it aflame. And so what we have is the first of what becomes a series of food and rent strikes that spread to Philadelphia and to Baltimore and to Boston and that echoed in New York City over the years that were launched by Jewish women whenever the price of the food they needed to feed their families or the rent they needed to pay was raised too high. But sometimes, some Jewish women stood up on their own. 
Edna Ferber was a very important um, writer. She wrote novels. They were made into films like Showboat and Giant. Probably not familiar to most, most of you, but she won a Pulitzer Prize. So if you've heard of the Pulitzer Prize, it gives you a sense of who she was. Um, so she describes that it's the 19, early 1930s. Adolf Hitler has just come to power in Nazi Germany. And she's invited by an industrialist to a soiree in his home in somewhere in the forests of Michigan. And everyone has to stay over because it's hard to get there, and he's, it's like a, an intellectual gathering, a cultural gathering. So at the dinner, this industrialist starts talking about money-grubbing Jews seeking to control the world, and she watched as at that dinner table, everyone around the table began agreeing with their host. So she stood up and said, I am a Jew. And then she wrote that she had never seen such hatred among a group of people that she was sitting next to. That night, when she went to her room, not only did she lock her door, but she also put a chair against it because that's how afraid she was. She was not the only Jewish woman to stand up against anti-Semitism. In this magazine, published briefly in New York City in the 1940s, um, a woman who would not give her name, it's, called, the, it's credited as anonymous, wrote an article where she said, I am a Jewess. In the article, she talks about how she experienced anti-Semitism through her children. Her son wanted to be a chemist, but he knew that even if he got into college, and the colleges back then had quotas on the numbers of Jews they admitted, even if he got into a good American college and graduated as a chemist, he would never get hired because that entire industry did not hire Jews. Her daughter wanted to go on a vacation with a friend, but the daughter received a letter from the hotel keeper saying, She's not going to find the kind of company she would like to keep here. That's because since the 1870s and the 1880s, hotels and clubs and private schools restricted the admission of Jews. And hotels could advertise, literally advertise, Gentiles only. Or we've also seen signs saying no Jews or dogs allowed. So anti, fighting against anti-Semitism, and this is a really important point because anti-Semitism is rising at the moment in America and around the world. There is a long history of Jewish women experiencing it. It affected their lives, and they responded to it. But I'm curious about what was going on in the home at the same time. Kate Simon was a wonderful travel writer. She wrote a series of memoirs. And in this one, she talks about what happens on the eve of the Sabbath. So you know that um, the Sabbath starts Friday evening. It um, continues through Saturday at sundown. So on Friday during the day, when she was growing up in the Bronx in a tenement, her mother would prepare for the Sabbath. So she would polish the furniture with lemon oil, and she would make a dish that was called gefilte fish. Gefilte fish is um, a, it's a, a blend of fish. Um, 
Oh, it's like a croquette. It's hard. It's quite hard to describe. It's a whole bunch of different kinds of fish all cut up and chopped up together. So she would make a filter fish, and then as the Sabbath Eve would descend, Kate Simon's mother would um, cover her hair as a good Jewish woman should, a married Jewish woman. She would light the Sabbath candles, and she would say the blessing over the candles. But one Sabbath Eve, in the midst of the blessing, her mother tore off the headcloth, blew out the candles, and announced, no more. I never believed in it, and my mother's not here, so I don't have to do it to please anyone. Kate Simon said her mother never lit Sabbath candles again, but the house still smelled of lemon oil and gefilte fish because those were also part of the Sabbath tradition. So she, too, was changing Judaism. So when I get to the years after World War II, my my conversation, my themes about Jewish women and activism really kind of rush forward. Um, I'll I'll give give you some headlines. Maybe some of you will know the answers. Um, A headline, Bronx Girl 21 Wins Miss America Contest. Bess Meyerson, right, okay. All right. Um, This one. Boxing fan wins $64,000 decision. Anybody? There's a woman named Dr. Joyce Brothers. Dr. Joyce Brothers is a very interesting figure. First of all, it's the 1950s. This is a woman who gets a PhD as a clinical psychologist in the 1950s. But it's the 1950s, so she has a child. She wants to stay home with the child and take care of the child herself. But her husband is a resident, a medical resident, and they can't live on his salary. So either the husband says to her or she says to him, you know, I'm really smart. I'm going to memorize a boxing manual, and I'm going to go on one of those newfangled TV shows, and I'm going to be an expert on boxing, and I'm going to win. So she goes on the $64,000 question. She won not $64,000, but $128,000 because she won twice. And then later on, for those of you who are familiar with her, she went on to have a career as a television psychologist. Um, This one, Case of the Teenage Doll. You guys should know this. It's Barbie, right? Okay, so Barbie was invented by Ruth Handler. Uh, Mattel. Ruth Handler, by the way, had two children. They were named Barbara and Ken. No surprise. Um, In 1960, there was a song that a a girl group called the Shirelles sang called Will You Love Me Tomorrow? It was written by Carol King. Maybe some of you have heard of her. Carol King was Carol Klein, but she changed her name. This is her wedding day to her co-author, Jerry Goffin. Why are they getting married? Because she's pregnant. What happens to girls who got pregnant out of wedlock in the 1950s? Three choices. One, they get an illegal and very dangerous abortion and could possibly die, even if they could find an abortionist who would risk going to jail. Two, that they have the baby. They go to these homes, like a Lakeview home. They go away, have the baby, give up the baby for adoption found a couple of cases where Jewish young women did that, but mostly that was much more common for Catholic women. Or they got married. So they got married, and then later on they got divorced. Um, 
And my last image from these years is Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique, the groundbreaking work that's really the transition between the 1950s, even though it was published in 1963, and the second wave of American feminism. So the question is, why? Why do, why do I give you these five women? First of all, they're all Jews. Secondly, they're all very different elements of America's Jewish women. And most importantly, their names in the news belie this image. This image um, is, uh, you can see it at the National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia. And I like to think of this as the mothers of the 1950s in their cookie-cutter homes in suburbia, pushing the baby boomers into the future. And the girls among those baby boomers, some of them would grow up to make the revolution whose coattails I wrote. Some of their mothers would also make that revolution because women pushing baby carriages have an awful lot of time to think. What it shows is that our images of the 1950s and of a kind of social conformity are, were missing the complexity of those years. And I want to give you three more examples of that complexity. Luba Bott was a nurse who survived Auschwitz, the Nazi notorious death camp and concentration camp. After World War II, a chance meeting with her uncle, Sidney Hillman, a very important labor leader, um, brought her to America. She came to America. She'd been a nurse in Warsaw, but she couldn't be a nurse in America because she didn't have her diploma or her transcript. She could only be a nurse's aide. Astonishingly, her transcript survived the destruction of the nursing school in Warsaw. It was brought to America, she learned English, and she became a nurse. And she spent the rest of her life in America as a nurse. About two weeks after she landed, one of her um, aunts went to her and said, I want you to tell me everything that happened to you while you were there, and then I don't want you ever to speak of it again. So Lubabot told her, about life in the Lemberg ghetto, about the day she ran to the hospital where her husband was to discover that it had been emptied out, about the, um, surviving the liquidation of the ghetto, about being beaten by the Nazis but never confessing that she was a Jew, and about um, a, a, a also um, uh, being sent to Auschwitz, but not as a Jew, but as a Polish political prisoner. Did she ever speak of that again to her family? I don't know. We don't know. Um, we, don't, we don't have a, a strong sense, but she wrote it in two volumes, and it, the book sits in the archives. It was never published. Um, this image shows another kind of diversity coming from those years, and that is um, the Rosenbergs, the execution of the Rosenbergs. It sent a Cold War chill across the Jews of the left. Um, and this image, also from these years, of an LGBT activist, Jerry Fayer, who after World War II left her husband and her children and went to hang out in the subterranean lesbian clubs of Greenwich Village. So the 50s are more complicated than we think, and then the 60s come rushing in. 
technological changes are there. 1953, we, the frozen TV dinners were invented, but the big technological change that affects women's lives is the invention of the birth control pill. For the first time ever, women around the world can control their fertility. So when we think of the 60s, we think of some of these images bursting forth, the Beatles, for example, Vietnam War. When we think of women in the 60s, this is what it looked like. And what's astonishing about that is the number of America's Jewish women who were in the forefront of the women's rights movement, the second wave of American feminism. I've already pointed to Betty Friedan. I'm only going to point to two more for reasons of time. I could not get all of them in the book. There was just no way. There were so many who were prominent. So I'll tell you about one. Her name was Sonia Pressman. She escaped Nazi Germany in the 1930s, came to America, became a lawyer. When she interviewed for legal jobs, the men would tell her, you could be my secretary, but not a lawyer. So she went to work for the government in the 60s, and she went to work for something called the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, whose job it was, was to enforce discrimination, uh, laws preventing discrimination in employment, uh, either on the base of race or of sex. Her first year there, she's the only woman on the staff, a third of the complaints coming in are from women who are complaining of sex discrimination in hiring. The men don't take any of the cases. They're only taking cases based on racial discrimination. She turns to Betty Friedan. She says, we need, we meaning women, need our own civil rights organization. They founded the National Organization of Women. 12% of its founding members were Jewish women. Another Jewish woman, this one a refugee from Vienna, came to America. Her name was Gerda Lerner and almost single-handedly launched the study of women's history. She petitioned the United States to establish a Women's History Week. We now have Women's History Month. You would expect that the feminist movement affected Judaism, and it did. This is what Judaism used to look like. This is a, a, a number of young women at their confirmation ceremony. The rabbi is in the center. Anybody recognize anybody in the photo? To the left of the rabbi is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Okay, so we know what she grew up to do. Now, as a result of Jewish feminism, this is what feminism looks like in the Jewish community today. And we could talk more about that in the Q&A. So I, I want to recap just briefly. I mean, if you think about what we've done, in a very short amount of time, we've gone from a colonial mother and, um, and immigrant Russian Jewish women who are doing all they can for their families. We've talked about women for whom Jewishness is expressed through their powerhouse organizations. We've talked about women for whom being a Jew was incidental, but then they got confronted by anti-Semitism. Um, we've looked at um, this broad range of, of women who, like Grace Nathan and Emma Lazarus, made their impact in different places. We've talked about Jewish women whose names you don't know, but they affected the lives of their families and their descendants, and then the famous Jewish women whose names you would expect. So I'm going to close 
with another pair of letter writers. Um, in the 1980s, when there was an international human rights movement underway to force the Soviet Union to let Jews leave the Soviet Union, Jews in their synagogues would pair with a, a, a child in the Soviet Union who um, couldn't have a bar about mitzvah. So I saw in the archive a letter that this teenager wrote um, in 1982 to her twin, and she said, did you get the stationery and the letters that I sent you? I went looking for the twin. I found her on Facebook. She lives in Jerusalem. She did get out, and she's actually a web designer. And I said, did you ever get those letters and the stationery that your twin sent you. And she said, you know, I, I don't have any memory of it. So I said, well, is there any chance that you and your and twin are Facebook friends? And she said, no, my twin and I are not Facebook friends. Her twin is named Cheryl Sandberg, COO of Facebook. So, but her, Vakira Volvoski, the twin's mother and Cheryl's father are Facebook friends. And it's a great place to stop because it's with another pair of letter writers who point the way to the future. So thank you very much. When did the first recorded Jews arrive in colonial America? When did they? Right. 1654, mm -hmm. September of 1654. So let me, let me back up. There were individual Jews who, who came earlier. We know of a metallurgist who was here probably in the 1580s. But the first Jewish community to come to colonial America came in 1654. They were fleeing the establishment of the Inquisition in Brazil. And, um, and the, the Inquisition would have imprisoned them and tortured them because they had once been Catholic, but they had reverted to living openly as Jews. They were, secret, they were secretly Jews. So 23 of them landed in New Amsterdam. The governor of New Amsterdam, Peter Stuyvesant, tried to kick them out. He called them this, members of a despicable race, blasphemers, and he felt that to have Jews in the colony would threaten the religious nature of the colony. But he didn't succeed. Okay, next question. Uh, while you're thinking of that question, I have a question. Okay. Can I ask a question? Um, you mentioned several times the archive. Mm -hmm. Will you tell us about the archive, what you're referring to? The archive. So I worked, um, a, a book like this is the product of, of a lifetime of thinking and, and writing. The, the day that I sent the manuscript off, um, my daughter, whose photo you saw, posted a photo on Facebook of herself when she was four. And she said, my mom finally finished the book. So when I say archive, it's many different archives that I have found materials in. Um, there are some special archives for the American Jewish experience, like the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati, the American Jewish Historical Society. But for example, the records of the pioneers, that literary book club, that's at the St. Louis Historical Society. So many, so archives are repositories where documents are collected. And for many years, they didn't collect so much about women, um, not, just, not just Jewish archives, but all archives. Um, I used archival materials from the Library of Congress. I mean, many different venues. I have a family that comes from St. Louis. Oh. And I know from the whatever you call bill of ladings or whatever, that they came through Ellis Island to New York. And this would be around 1900. Mm -hmm. What would have made Jewish people 
go to St. Louis. You mentioned that before. Right, and she went in the 1860s, right. Yeah, what, what was in St. Louis that would... Uh, so St. Louis was, I mean, very much the gateway to the West. So you, ha you have, to, have to remember, th think about what America was like in the 19th century before the Civil War and right after the Civil War. It was a nation that was believed in manifest destiny. It believed that it had a right to conquer from sea to sea. And the, these towns and cities were, um, they, they start out as towns, they're emerging as cities, are dotted across waterways. So New Orleans, St. Louis, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, um, uh, up and down along the riverways. And so that would have been one of the reasons St. I don't know, I don't know when St. Louis was established, but imagining that was probably established as some kind of trading outpost at the, um, at the end of the, of the, 18th century would be my guess, yeah. But Jews, Jews, uh, there were, by 1860, there were about 150,000 Jews in the United States, and although there's a large community in New York, there are Jews in almost every single town and city across America at that point. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I was just wondering what influenced you to write so specifically about America's Jewish women, and if through your research, you have like your perception of your own Jewish identity has changed, mm -hmm. or have, are there certain things that were reaffirmed through your research? Oh, okay. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, well, I write about America's Jewish women, America, because I'm I'm an American historian, and while I, I should say that I actually teach ancient and medieval Jewish history and modern Jewish history, and I teach the Holocaust, and I teach in Europe, but I've always researched and my publications are always, are always almost exclusively, not completely, on the U.S. Um, and I think in terms of my own identity, I, one's Jewish identity is something that evolves and changes. It's often likened to a journey. So as I learned more, I, that certainly, I found that really particularly fascinating as I learned more, especially about some, some of these Jewish women who were um, so active, but whose activism was dismissed because they were not seen as important. I'll, I'll give you an example. Going back to Grace Nathan, um, some, of her pub, some of her writing has been published in a, in a very big book, in the 1950s, and the man who edited that book said she's only here because her father and her brother are important. Her husband, or her, 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 her husband and her brother are important. Her husband was a, a patriot during the Revolutionary War. Her brother was a leader of a synagogue in New York. And otherwise, she wouldn't have made it into the book. And I sort of like, it's not so much about my Jewish identity, it's my feminist identity. He really got my hackles up when he wrote that. I wonder if I can ask the last question. Absolutely. Um, and it's about my personal favorite heroine, Bella Abzug. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Could you tell, tell us about Bella Abzug and yeah. how she fits into American Jewish women's right. history? Because I'm sure there are young people here who perhaps don't even know the no, name yeah, yeah. or her significance. Right. So the first thing I want to say is right now I'm Broadway in New York. I know it's really far away, but... Harvey, uh, maybe it's off-Broadway, Harvey um, Firestein is playing Bella Abzug in a play. Yeah, in case you didn't know. Bella, so June will be the 100th anniversary of Bella Abzug's birth. Bella Abzug, featured, first of all, she features in my story. 
Um, when she was 13 years old, her father died, and for a year she went to synagogue to say the memorial prayer that one says for one's parent when they die. Um, but in those days, women, Jewish women didn't say that, so she would go to an Orthodox synagogue every morning on her way to school, stand behind the barrier that separates women from men in the synagogue and say that prayer. To a very powerful Jewish identity, and she also had a very powerful feminist identity. She was part of a movement called Women's Strike for Peace. In the 1950s and the 1960s, there was tremendous fear about um, uh, radiation fallout from atomic testing and, of course, fear of a nuclear holocaust. And Women's Strike for Peace was campaigning to end, end nuclear testing and um, campaigning for peace. And she rode Women's Strike for Peace into the U.S. Congress. In, I think she was elected in 1972. She was known for being outspoken, super brash, and for wearing really big hats because she was a small woman, and in those hats, you couldn't miss her. And she, her, one of my favorite sayings of hers was um, that uh, they used to tell us we have to carry a lipstick. Um, those days are over. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Pamela. Um, we really, really appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.